So, friends, got good news for you. If you have been wondering why the first five books of the Bible are called Torah, and yet it's not so much a bunch of laws that we've encountered yet, but stories, tonight is the night when Torah really kind of steps into the name we've given the whole collection of scripture there. This is where law really starts to hit you in the face. You might remember from last week when we were in um, the the portion called Yithro, Jethro, we had seen the Ten Commandments, and yet for this for last week's um, Haftarah reading, we weren't so concerned with them, and it felt almost uh, backwards to focus thematically on the idea of an intermediary. But what we saw last week is that Moses is exhausted from sunrise to sunset, judging between every little skirmish, every little problem Israel deals with all day, every day. And Jethro sits him down and says, you need other people to outsource this to. You need other people to be intermediaries between what you can teach and what people can practice. And we see the implementation of all of these different judges at different levels, thousands and hundreds, fifties and tens. What we then get in the next exact next portion of scripture is the slow unfurling of a non-human but still powerful and active intermediary, which is law. We start to get a list of, if this happens, this is how you should handle it. And it's going to feel really random. In just a minute, I'm going to take you through reading some of them side by side, and it's not going to feel all that purposeful. Um, not It's not going to read like a, a good novel that has a simple plot. It's almost a list of do's and don'ts. And this is where we're going to come face to face with the idea of law in biblical literature, which is different from how we think of it today. And then from there, we're going to jump to our Parsha, uh, sorry, to our Haftarah from the Parsha. And believe it or not, there are four different Parshot, Haftarot, that could go with this Parsha. And we're on a four-year cycle. And I get to inform y'all that um, all the study aids I'm most want to use uh, week to week, we're so invested in giving help and, and thought to the other three, very little was left to be said about the fourth, which we're on. Uh, and yet I do believe that there is a theme that we can use as a lens to read today's Haftarah, which is coming from the very end of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 66. So that's where we're going to be today. But first I want to, let me go ahead and share my screen here and give us just a wild, fast overview of what Mishpatim is telling to us from Aparsha. I hope that we are all able to see here 21 in the big words and bold Hebrew servants just by a, a nodding yes or no. Can y'all see this? Fantastic. Now, I'm not going to take us through every single word here, but it's important to know that these are the laws you are to set before them. And this is directly downstream of the issue with Moses having to judge people, setting up judges, and then giving them something with which they can use other than just what they think is wise, something standard that they can use to judge between disputes. And it's not the most generic thing. It's not like saying, don't you know, don't ride your camel more than 10 kilometers an hour or don't jaywalk in the street. These are not 
um, bland, simple universals. These are actually really specific. Just read in verse, verse two, if you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years, but in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. If he comes alone, he is to go free alone. But if he has a wife when he comes, she's to go with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman and her children shall belong to her master and only the man shall go free. But if the servant declares, I'd love my master and my wife and children, and I don't want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He'll take him to the door of the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl, and then he'll be a servant for life. Now, this is just one of the much longer examples, which there are dozens, of really specific laws that kind of direct you down a path. Have you ever seen a tree diagram, you know, for solving a problem? It's like, you know, is it moving when it's supposed to? You got duct tape or WD-40 to, to fix every problem. And based on these questions, yes or no here, yes or no there, you navigate your way down to a good result that's just for everyone given the circumstances. And in a different study, we would go through all of these individually, or maybe pick a few of these that are close to our hearts and really wrestle with them and say, man, like, is there a loophole here? Is there something to, to exploit this law? Did the, those who wrote this law, including God himself and his omniscience, really foresee every single possibility? But friends, if we were to do that, we'd be writing the Talmud, not uh, having a Bible study. <laughs> the working out of halakha, the way you walk in law, the way that you do the will of God, according to what he's written, in very specific day-to-day -day life, is an entire discipline um, that in one sense really embodies the, the Jewish or Judaic nature of this law, but in another sense can get lost, not seeing the forest for the sake of the trees. And I think we would very easily get lost in trying to do the same thing. Because we're going to find ourselves trudging through this portion of scripture, which unfortunately many Christians can't stand. And I know that they can take this up with uh, with Aaron, I think John as well. Uh, they are ardent defenders of these books, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. But for the average Christian, myself included, it's hard to read through these and say, gosh, like, what, what part of this applies to me? Am I supposed to have this in gold letters on, you know, somewhere in my house to remind me, you know, this is the the textbook for life, the manual to get me through every day's problems? And the the, the simple answer, friends, is no, it, that's not actually what it's doing. It is inspiring us. It is setting up a, a series of plot points that take shape into a broader picture of the holy life. But it is not every single um, boundary perfectly sketching out for you um, universal morality on every single question. The Bible's not trying to do that. As we read down through verses 12 to 20, we talk about people who get in fights. Anyone who strikes a person with a fatal blow is to be put to death. But if it's not done intentionally, but God lets it happen, now there's a whole issue going into the idea of manslaughter. There to flee to a place I'll designate. And later on, we're going to get very particular rules about sanctuary cities and the uh, the redeemer of blood uh, and how you deal with people who are on the, on the run after encounters like this. We get this, um, it's not quite primordial, but it is a, an initial template 
for Israel in the wilderness how to manage their affairs in a just way, given the context that they are put in already. We talk about how to relate to father and mother. We talk about how to relate to a friend um, you get in an argument with, someone who is mistreating their servant, someone who's being mistreated um, by master, someone who, and this is a verse many people like to make a lot of hay over, um, fighting and hitting a pregnant woman. I'll read it for you quickly. If, if people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there's no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands in the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Now, I know you're probably all familiar with the English adage, an eye for an eye. And we've also got the quip later, it makes the world blind. Um, but clearly, a lot of people are reading it the opposite way. Some people think that you have some kind of moral duty to make sure someone is hurt as much as you were hurt. It's the exact opposite, friends. It is limiting what what your rebellion, not rebellion, but your um, revenge can look like. It is setting a, play, a limit on how much you can do to get uh, revenge for what was done against you. And it's perfectly shown here. An owner who hits a male or female slave in the eye and destroys it must let the slave go free to compensate for the eye. And an owner who knocks out the tooth of a male or a female slave must let the slave go free to compensate for the tooth. Now, friends, when we wrestle with the incredibly difficult question of slavery at different eras of human history, our own nation's histories of it in recent years, um, the modern epidemic across our world of, of modern human trafficking and slavery, and then what it looked like in biblical times, I know that these are hard texts to read. And I just want to encourage y'all, this is shocking to find that a person would be respected enough that their eye was not just something for the master to take away willy-nilly, that that person does still have dignity and value in the eyes of God and in the community of his people. So we go through what happens with animals, what happens with people who own those animals and should be more uh, responsible. And then, of course, questions of property. Unfortunately, we do find mention of servants in this loop, and we can tease out um, for ourselves where we stand today. But the big picture I don't want us to miss as we wade through these trees is that these rules are helping to build a, an ideal to shape one bit at a time, a kind of community that God intends for his people to be. And if they stray from that, if they fall away from that, if they start to look for the loopholes in the laws, because there are, there are spaces between these laws where you really can get away with something unrighteous and technically be on the right side of the literal writing. That's not how God sees things. You don't trick God that way. And the mere possibility for a person to, to, to try and read the law this way is what reveals the standing of their heart in the first place. So as we go through this long list, again, I'm not going to read all of it for you, 
But as we go through this long list of laws, we find ourselves thinking, gosh, is this, is this the kind of thing you would delight in? On a, on a Saturday morning, would you just sit down and open up a book with nothing but these words and, and read through it for fun? Would you dwell on it, meditate on it, delight in it day or night? That is what the psalm writers, the psalmists, and the writers of other wisdom literature and the Proverbs talk about. The righteous loves the law of the Lord, right? We dwell on his law day and night. Is this the stuff that we're you know, daydreaming about and meditating on and, and really trying to um, inspire our futures with? It would be really odd if word for word, the list of do's and don'ts you find here is really what those authors are talking about. I want us to think about it a slightly different way as we go through this portion tonight called Mishpatim. These laws are more like case studies than they are an exhaustive list of do's and don'ts. They come up because at some point, two people got in a fight and a pregnant woman was hit and they had to figure out with extraordinary wisdom in their time, how do we deal with this? And after the fact, Moses is able to then, using the wisdom he's been given by God, and sometimes the exact words he's been given by God, he's able to issue for us these do's and don'ts that help us navigate future situations. These case study laws are actually not abnormal. Um, despite what you might have heard from other people in the past, there are other law codes in the Near East from around the same time, some that are just before the Exodus and some that are just after. But the law code we find in, in Torah is not like completely unique, you know, out of nowhere that this is the first people group to ever be given morality. I'm sorry to say that's just not a good way of reading history. What we can say, though, is this is different from the other law codes in that it is trying to, like I said just a moment before, it is trying to get at the heart of the people who live there, not just manage their affairs. A lot of people will talk about the Code of Hammurabi, other law codes that are cited in the thousands books across um, across archaeological finds and libraries over the years. And never once do we find an exact law from Hammurabi's code cited in an exact um, court case written about later on. Never once do we find today's legal practice where everything is by the letter of the book. Never once do we find that back there. Instead, and especially in the case of biblical law, we find people inspired by these rules to aim for a higher goal of living. And that, I think, is one of the peculiar facets of Torah. But if you've uh, been around Hebrew for very long, you might know that Torah has several ways to translate. And law is actually not the best one in English in most cases. Of course, when you have literal rules that people follow and there are punishments for not following those rules, it's totally fine to say law. In fact, the reason why we say law so much is that the Greek Septuagint translators preferred the Greek word nomos, which in Greek society was exactly that same concept. Laws for your city. 
that if you broke them, there is a punishment. But more often, when you're reading the first five books of Moses, you find Torah to be instruction. It's exhortation to righteousness, sometimes in the form of a story. But it also has cosmology in there, describing how the world is, functions, where it's going. Etiology, explaining why we do some weird things today. Well, it's based on something that happened to our forefather Jacob back then. We have plenty of poetry, the Song of the Sea, Song of Moses and Miriam. Um, we have uh, these different literatures, genres, um, back and forth in Torah. And all together, the stories, the poems, the descriptions of how the world works from day to day, the exclamations of who God is and how he has shown his character to us, they all piece together for us a shape of what kind of people we want to be. I want to give you one example from the New Testament, if I can. You might be familiar with um, a command that Peter issues to godly women among the, the new early Christian communities. This is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, when he says to not be adorned with jewelry. And he does say that pretty explicitly. So on its face, a command like that might sound like a total prohibition of tending to somebody's appearance. And anyone wearing earrings or a necklace might be on the wrong side of that rule. But that's far less important than the two halves of his statement. It's not his fixation on jewelry that he's getting at. The more important point was to be godly, was to adorn yourselves with good works. And anyone who understands the principle being communicated would know that the statement, don't be adorned with jewelry, is only literal insofar as jewelry could oppose or threaten to replace good character as an attractive quality. But standing by itself, we are not to get stuck in the weeds of what, what constitutes jewelry. Is it only precious stones? Is it metals? And yet that's the kind of thing that lots of people spend their entire lives doing, making sure they know all of the boundaries and sometimes all of the loopholes too. They miss the forest for the trees. But if we read in, in Peter's example here, it's helpful to remember that in the ancient world, women were often dehumanized in the course of marital preparation, reduced to something more like a commodity that a future husband either would find attractive enough to invest in or not. And for Peter to take emphasis away from that, away from the outer adornment, and to make their chief concern one of personal character, I think you might agree with me, this is rehumanizing women in the ancient world, especially among those early Christian societies. But if we, all we do is take the first half of that statement, Peter said no jewelry, so no jewelry, girls, then what, what do we actually once again dehumanize our sisters in Christ by focusing more on the outward appearance just in the other direction from how people in the ancient world were. And we're stuck in the exact same problem that Peter is trying to solve, which is having us focus on our character rather than outer adornments. Now, Peter wasn't one of the original authors of Torah, I know that, but he's working within the tradition established by Torah. And I think case studies like that across the Old and New Testament alike can show us that Torah is leading us somewhere 
rather than blocking us in to someplace where we're stuck. So I hope you know um, just from this setup of tonight's Parsha and then Haftarah that the law we see is not supposed to be exhaustive. Each rule is not supposed to be its own total um, guardrail. It is supposed to point us towards something. And Isaiah knew this clearly. Isaiah saw this. He saw when it worked in the lives of, of people. Think about Hezekiah's repentance, for example. Isaiah could see when someone was aiming for the ideal Torah was pushing them towards. And Isaiah could also see when we were doing the exact opposite. And that's where we find ourselves tonight in our Haftarah. I'm going to go ahead and share with y'all <clears throat> the full text of what we're reading together. Just by a, a nodding of heads, can you guys see Isaiah 66 here? Thus says the Lord. Fantastic. I, I'm, I'm interested, by the way, we'll talk about this later on. The many different translation committees want to call this section true and false worship. I think that's a pretty cool title. It's not part of the original scripture, um, but we'll later on ask if you think that that's the most fitting title to give to this section or if something else maybe is jumping out at y'all. Earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. He who kills a bull is as if he slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb as if he breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering as if he offers swine's blood. He who burns incense as if he blesses an idol. Just as they've chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations, so will I choose their delusions and bring their fears on them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear, but they did evil before my eyes and chose that which I do not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brethren who hated you, who cast you out for my name's sake, said, Let the Lord be glorified that we can see your joy, but they shall be ashamed. The sound of noise from the city. A voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord who fully repays his enemies. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born all at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. Shall I bring to the time of birth and not cause delivery, says the Lord? Shall I who cause delivery shut up the womb, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad with her, all you who love her. 
Rejoice for joy with her, all you who mourn for her, that you may be fed and satisfied with the consolation of her bosom, that you may drink deeply and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, in the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then you shall feed. On her sides shall you be carried and be dandled on her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. When you see this, your heart shall rejoice, and your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants, and his indignation to his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword, the Lord will judge all flesh and the slain of the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves to go to the gardens after an idol in the midst eating swine's flesh and the abomination and the mouse shall be consumed together, says the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts. It shall be that I'll gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and to those among them who escape, I will send to the nations, to Tarshish and Pul and Lud, who draw the bow and Tuval and Javan, to the coastlands afar off who have not heard my fame nor seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. Then they shall bring all your brethren for an offering to the Lord out of all nations, on horses and in chariots and in litters, on mules and camels, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord. As the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel into the house of the Lord. And I will also take some of them for priests and Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. And they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who've transgressed against me. For their worm does not die, and their fire is not quenched. They shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> We're going to pit stop for quite a while, pretty much the rest of our time here. Um, just by a, a few nods. Can y'all still see the scripture? Very good. Okay. <clears throat> Again, um, I would pose to us the question, true worship and false. It's a nifty title. Um, for this section, does it really seem like Isaiah is giving us the full bounds of what constitutes proper worship and the full bounds of um, what constitutes improper worship. It's kind of a trick question. I don't think he's doing that, but I do think he's giving us a picture, right? This is especially true in verse three, 
this series of of um, actions that are equated with each other. And they're really shocking, right? He who kills a bull, as in preparing a sacrifice, which is a good thing, he does this as if he slays a man. And you can see the italics here, as is as if, that's necessary on the translator's parts to put in English because he's not saying in a full sentence, um, equating um, the two in any particular way. He's really just juxtaposing two things. Doing this is doing that. Well, this can't be every person killing every bull, right? This is describing for us a kind of person who is fulfilling the letter of the law and clearly not the spirit. And God can see right through. He who kills a bull, he who sacrifices a lamb, he who offers a grain offering, he who burns incense. What is he really doing? Before God, it's more pragmatically true. It's as if he's slaying a man. It's more like he's breaking an animal's neck. It's like he's offering an abomination, swine's blood. It's as if he's blessing another, an idol, which is about the worst possible thing you can do if you're trying to worship the God of Israel. <clears throat> Just as they've chosen their own ways, Isaiah says, in their soul delights in their abominations. So I will choose their delusions and bring their fears on them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear. Do you guys remember last week we were in chapter six? He says, go on seeing and not understanding. Go on listening and not really hearing. I think that that was a sarcastic point. I think God wants his people to see and to hear and to understand. And yet we know pretty much from beginning to end of Isaiah's ministry, he is stuck with people who simply don't. Instead, they do evil before God's eyes and choose, openly choose, that in which he does not delight. All this is contrasted with what we were told in verse 2, and I want you to notice the kind of checker pattern we get in Isaiah's topic here. All of this last chapter, this is the last thing he says. His book of prophecy ends here. Um, it's checkered between a description of someone that God's delighting in, someone who properly seems to get it, and then someone who doesn't, someone who does, and someone who doesn't. And what do we get in verse two that's so potent? It might remind you of something from the New Testament. He says, all those things my hand has made and those things exist, but on this one will I look. This is the thing that impresses me, God says. On him who is poor and of a contrite spirit. In Hebrew, he says, ani unehe ruach, poor and crippled in spirit. So neche, which I have here is crippled, and our uh, New King James Version has contrite, not contesting it. Contrite's a fine word for it. But that word only appears three times in the biblical Hebrew text. Um, both other times are literal descriptions of cripples who can't walk. And it's supposed to be a brokenness. It's supposed to remind us... Um, now that we have both texts in front of us, of Psalm 51, a broken and contrite spirit, O Lord, you will not despise. <clears throat> and if you're a fan of the New Testament, which I assume just about everyone is, you might remember Matthew takes the Sermon on the Mount. We get Luke's version, which he says, blessed are the poor. Okay, great. 
that that's good news. And Matthew adds this tiny little addition in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And there years ago, I I was trying to be edgy in a, a Greek class, you know, find a new way to read things that other people hadn't done before. And I kind of messed with um, an ambiguity in the wording, an ambiguity in the way the sentence flows. And I thought, what if it was like spiritually blessed are the poor, but like simply poor? And my big argument at the time was that I couldn't find poor in spirit anywhere else in biblical literature. There's one reference to people who are kind of like the impoverished in a spiritual sense that we get from the Qumran community. And we know they didn't really they didn't really seem to influence anyone except themselves. Jesus pretty much only mocks them. But then we do get this, Isaiah 66, 2, and I'm now convinced that Matthew has this in mind, and Jesus likely does too, if he indeed teaches or in spirit as this unique phrase. What on earth does it mean? Ani in Hebrew, it's it's still a word today. Um, it doesn't only mean like low income. It means afflicted. It means sick. It means weak. It means all the things you don't want to be in a conventional society. And so I don't want to necessarily say that you can take your pick of any translation you want. Poor probably is the best, but it's not a purely economic term. This is a this is a holistic term for someone where you walk by and whatever is afflicting that person is enough for you to say, I don't want to be that guy. I'm glad I'm not that guy. And yet it is that guy who is afflicted and crippled in spirit, who trembles at God's word. This is, by the way, a very unique term, but you might've heard it many times. Chared. Sound familiar to anyone? We talk about the old, the, the Orthodox Jewish community and the ultra-Orthodox community. And uh, here in Israel, in other parts of the world too, there's, there's other terms we associate with these different factions of Judaism. The most common you'll hear around here in Jerusalem is Haredi. And uh, a lot of us, at least English speakers, Anglophiles, don't stop to think about what it means. It's just, okay, that's the title for the guys who who dress differently and act differently and have weird cell phones and don't want to associate with the rest of society. But it has a pretty good root. And this is the verse where they get the term from. The reason why that community is called Haredim is because here in verse th- 2 and also in verse 5, the people who tremble, um, you who tremble, this is Atem Haredim. Um, at his word. They are people who shake before the Lord. It might remind you of another group, Christians, um, a few hundred years ago, who made a lot of good oatmeal, the Quakers. Now, Quakers was an insulting term, not wanted by them, but imposed upon them by other people who said, oh, those, those are the guys who get way too into it. Those are the ones who are too emotional, too um, <clears throat> holistically involved. They shake, they quake before God. And I know these words have come a long journey over a long period of time. Um, it would be a fallacy to assume that the original meaning or Isaiah's meaning of a word has to be what we mean when we say. Like if you say Haredi, you don't necessarily think about someone trembling today. 
But the important thing to know is that they saw themselves as that. This was a worthwhile thing to be and to do. And it is something worth emulating. To take God so seriously that like Israel before Mount Sinai, hearing the thundering voice of God shake the earth with darkness, or like Isaiah, who gets a vision very similar, the earth shaking and darkness and smoke, and your, your only reaction is to tremble in fear. To take that with that list of rules you read earlier, that's a very significantly potent degree of commitment to the word of God taking him very seriously. And I think that's what we can take from this. Moving on a little bit just to, <clears throat> to verse 10, a couple of notes here. I think this is exceptionally useful for uh, those who um, to whom Christ Church and its ministry is close to your hearts. It says to rejoice with Jerusalem and to be glad with her, all you who love her. But this is the shocking part. Rejoice for joy with her, all you who mourn for her. Last week, we talked briefly about Jesus mourning over Jerusalem, grieving Jerusalem. And I think that uh, these days are, are every bit as um, worthy to take our attention and our sobriety of thought. Some of us are probably mourning over Jerusalem. If not for our fears regarding the war, then our fears regarding the, the culture and um, the people, the being the center of all kinds of different conflicts, the center of all kinds of different tensions. If you love Jerusalem, you probably have some negative thoughts and you probably grieve and mourn something about the city and the people who live here. And I think that that, is a necessary um, first step, a place we're coming from to then be commanded by Isaiah, rejoice for joy with her. Because ultimately there is joy at the seat of this city. And uh, for all that it stands for in the people of Israel, there is joy coming. And that joy is, is pretty um, well expounded on by Isaiah. I want to throw out to y'all as well, just a random side thought. I could not confirm it, but Horatio Spafford's uh, super famous hymn that might not be John's favorite, but is one of mine. Uh, it is well with my soul says, when peace like a river attendeth my way. And I don't know if he was inspired by verse 12, but come on. Right? Come on. Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river. Could be, maybe not. No one can confirm from his biographies, apparently, whether or not he was inspired by this verse. But the image is potent, both in the hymn and in the scripture, that like a flow of rushing water that gives life and brings nourishment to all plants and animals, livestock and people coming its way, river coming from God is extended to the city of Jerusalem and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. And there will be comforted. Comfort is a huge, huge theme for Isaiah, particularly the last third of his book of prophecy. The need to be comforted by God is extreme in Isaiah's days. And I think it rings very well and true for us 
tonight too. Just a couple more thoughts and a question to end for y'all. Verse 19, um, <clears throat> what we have here is a description of a bunch of places, place names that we might not be familiar with. If you know the story of Jonah, you probably know, oh yeah, Tarshish is like supposed to be that far off city. Maybe it's Spain um, these days, but it's not the only one. Tarshish and Pul and Lud who draw the bow and Tuval and Javan. And here's our clue, even if we don't go down and look exactly where are all these cities, the coastlands afar off who've not heard my fame nor seen my glory. These are essentially boundary markers for the entire interconnected world the Eurasian um, connected world of the Mediterranean, these are those boundary markers. And so they essentially are telling us Isaiah is envisioning the whole world as he knows it. Even those, this is so important, those who have not heard of the Lord's fame nor seen his glory, but they shall still declare his glory among the Gentiles. There is a coming... Um, clash of civilizations, of gospel truth, um, of a way that they did things in their societies before and after the knowledge of God comes to them. And all of this centers back on bringing that glory to Jerusalem. And this is where we find ourselves in some of the most beautiful description Isaiah gives us. As the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord. So shall your descendants and your name remain. It shall come to pass that from new moon to new moon, another from Sabbath to another Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. That's beautiful. And I really, sorry to confess um, personal bias, but I kind of wish it was the last thing he said. But as it stands... We have verse 24, and that's what I'm going to end with, with tonight, asking y'all about. What's the last thing we do? Well, in verse 21, we're told that he makes more priests and Levites, presumably not from the tribe of Levi. God opens priesthood to even more of his people. We see his everlasting new creation, and just as everlasting as that is, so will we have assurance of our names, our descendants, our lives. This is fantastical stuff. And the knowledge that every year from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh, all people will come to worship God on his holy mountain in Jerusalem. This is Isaiah's beautiful vision, but what's the last thing they do? They go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who transgressed against me. For their worm does not die, their fire is not quenched, they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. Mic drop. What a way to end. So as we end tonight, um, I'm going to pause it for, for y'all one thought and open it to all of your thoughts. That one thought is this. I think reading with the lens is helpful. It's not the only way to read scripture. In fact, it can't be because when you read with a lens, you're blind to everything else you're not looking for. But if we read with the lens of Isaiah, knowing the law of God, knowing what Torah is supposed to do in our hearts, and he's seeing it on full display here in all of its working and all the people who don't let it do its work, 
he sees the end result, what God sets before us, life and death, prosperity and despair. He sets before us options, and you can see firsthand in this prophecy people are making that deliberate choice, either for God or away from God. And so when we're faced like this, side by side with the dual vision of those celebrating God, bringing their glory in to join his in Jerusalem, and those same people are onlookers through the destruction of the people who did not do that, what do you think you're supposed to be left feeling? That's my question for y'all tonight.